I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of God for the people of God. If you were to ask me who I am, I would probably say husband, father, brother, son. If you gave me time, I might have time to get on to pastor and preacher and other roles that I fulfill. I would venture to guess if I asked you who you are, the first things you would begin to tell me would be relationships and roles that you have in your life. But if I ask you from the perspective of Christian theology or faith who you are, your answer might change. You might say, I am a child of God. I'm beloved by God. Or you might even say, oh, I am one made in God's image. Or you could say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Or any number of other ways that the Bible and our faith describe who we are based primarily on our relationship with God. Roberta Bondi is a retired professor from our United Methodist Seminary in Atlanta, Georgia. It's called Candler School of Theology. She is an expert on the early church, particularly the desert mothers and fathers, as they were called, those who um, left their everyday life in pursuit of living a life filled with love of God and love of neighbor as a devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. She writes in one of her books about who we are. She says this, love of God and neighbor is the goal of the Christian life. For our Christian forebears, only a person who loves is a fully functioning human being. I want to repeat that last part. Only a person who loves is a fully functioning human being. But then she goes on to write, Yet, because of the presence of sin in the world, loving as God intends for us does not come easily. Learning to love is, in fact, what the Christian life is about. 
And it is a lifetime's enterprise. I think we can hear that what Bondi is writing about in terms of who we are and what Jesus is praying about, and that is a prayer that we read this morning. This whole chapter 17 is basically a prayer that Jesus is offering on this last night that he's with his disciples. He prays for himself. He prays for the disciples. He prays for those who will come afterwards. He prays for the world. But Jesus says as he prays that he's praying not only on behalf of these, that is those that are gathered with him, but then he goes on to say in verse 20, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. He's counting on these folks gathered with him in that upper room on this last night to be the purveyors of the gospel, the ones who go out and witness and share this good news with others. But let me remind you who was in the room. His lead disciple, Peter, is about to deny him. Another one seated at table with him, Judas, is about to betray him. And all the others are going to disappear. They're going to flee. They're not interested in talking to anyone about Jesus. They want to go hide. They want to disappear. Lest they be arrested as he's going to be. And yet somehow, Jesus never loses confidence in those gathered in that room with him. And I wonder, how can that be that a group like this who's going to betray him and deny him and hide from him are the ones that he is going to count on? I wondered how he was able to maintain his confidence in the group that were there because that's what he's praying as if the rest of us are going to get this message because they're going to proclaim it. I began to read back through the Gospel of John this week, trying to see, trying to find clues to how Jesus thinks about his disciples and how he could have enough confidence that he would be praying that they're the ones that others will hear through their word. I think I found really the answer in the very first chapter of John. You remember how John starts his Gospel let me read you a few of those verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then in verse 10, John goes on to say, He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. And then in verse 12, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God 
who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. People born of God. So if you ask Jesus, who are your disciples? I think rather than focusing on the fleeing, fearful part, Jesus focuses on the power of God alive in those who receive him part. Jesus is counting on God's power to continue to be alive in the world through the Holy Spirit. And that's what's going to make all the difference in the lives of these disciples who are gathered in that room. And in fact, the Gospel of John tries to convince us that that is true for all of us. That it's a relationship of love with God through Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that makes all the difference in the world for each and every one of us. You can hear it in his prayer from today, I think. Listen to verse 26 again. Here's Jesus praying, and he says, I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you hear the continuity that Jesus sees, who Jesus recognizes and reveals to the rest of us, that he has this close relationship between father and son, central to that, this love that God is pouring out upon us, and he's praying that all of us would have that same relationship, that same experience. Or back up in verse 21, he says, As you, Father, are in me and I am you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see how he expects this relationship that he has with God that is so intimate that he calls God Father, his expectation is that all of us are going to be drawn that close to God as one of his followers. But not that we do it on our own, but that as we focus on that and, and commit ourselves to that, that God's power will be there for us with God's love through the Holy Spirit. All through John, Jesus is talking about what we've come to call the Trinity, even though he doesn't use that word, but he talks about this relationship of love that exists within God between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then he says a most radical thing is the same relationship that we observe and experience can be ours, that we can have that kind of intimacy, that kind of closeness, that kind of contact with God, creator of the universe. God is creating and redeeming and sustaining us with divine love. John speaks of it over and over. He quotes Jesus telling us about the power and love and the presence of the Holy Spirit over and over as we read through John. So rather than seeing just the frailty of the disciples gathered in that room, or even of us, Jesus focuses on the power 
of a relationship with God to transform fleeing disciples into teaching, preaching, healing, leading disciples. I thought about how this works in our own time, in our own lives. I've been sharing with you that the United Methodist Church worldwide gathers every four years in what we call the General Conference. It's a time for clergy and lay delegates representing all the United Methodists in the world to come together to consider our path forward. Any United Methodist layperson or clergy person, any local church, any annual conference can send in an idea or a petition or a piece of legislation. Hundreds and hundreds are sent every time the general conference is approaching. It is the task of those delegates who gathered there this time. They were in Portland, Oregon. They gather to try to sort out all those petitions, all those ideas, to try to discern what's the best way forward for us. By reading through all of the petitions that came in before they ever got there, they knew that the two main issues were going to be that People had lots of ideas about how we might restructure the United Methodist Church worldwide, try to cut down on some overhead and make us more effective, and also about how we would speak about human sexuality. Well, they gathered and they began to discuss all of that, and within a few days it became fairly clear that they were not of one mind. And in fact, the reports were that as they spoke to one another, sometimes they were not kind. They did not seem to be expressing this love of God or love of Christ for each other in their discussion and debate. And so some began to suggest that they should vote while they were there to split the church. So if you agree with me, you come with me and we'll go over here. And if you don't, then you go with those like you and go over there. And the majority gets to keep the United Methodist Church and the rest of you all have to get out of here or Go start a new denomination or something. So for several days, there was quite a bit of talk about how that might happen and whether or not they should be voting on such a thing. But it seemed like the underlying assumption in all of that discussion was that they had to be in agreement on this issue or that issue to stay united as the United Methodist Church. But as I was working on this gospel of john these last several weeks and particularly this prayer that jesus teaches i see something different than that assumption jesus seems to assume that our unity as christians is not because we agree on all the issues but because the relationship we have with christ is at the center because the relationship we have at Christ is at the center of who we are and therefore all that we do. Whether or not we agree with one another on this issue or that issue is not the basis for whether or not I love you, whether or not I see you as a fellow Christian, whether or not I feel like we are united together in faith. William Barclay, the extraordinary biblical scholar from the last century, wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. When he's discussing this prayer of Jesus, he writes 
about what he thinks Jesus is speaking about in terms of unity. He asked this question. What was this unity for which Jesus prayed? And then he says it was not a unity of administration or organization. It was not in any sense an ecclesiastical unity. It was a unity of personal relationship. We have already seen that the union between Jesus and God was one of love and obedience. It was a unity of love for which Jesus prayed, a unity in which humans loved each other because they loved him. He goes on to say, Christians will never organize their churches all in the same way. They will never worship God all in the same way. They will never even all believe precisely the same things. But Christian unity transcends all these differences and joins humans together in love. That's what Jesus is praying about. He knows he's about to go away. And he's told his disciples that. And that in fact it's going to be good that he's going because he will be closer to the Father and the Holy Spirit will come to lead them and remind them of everything, to comfort them, to be with them in all circumstances. I think it's a fair summary to say that Jesus' prayer is that all of us may know and trust this greatest love of all that all of us might believe as john says often and he means trust or rely on god and god's powerful unending everlasting love to carry us through this greatest love of all that comes from god this divine love that god offers to us without price jesus says can unite us in life and in death, and in life beyond death. I want us to hear these last couple of verses in Scripture, but of course they're also the last couple of verses of this prayer of Jesus on this last night that he's talking with his disciples. He's praying for them, but he's also praying for us. I'm going to read to you verse 24, 25, and 26. Hear it in an attitude of prayer. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen.